Hello, and welcome back to the third episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. In this episode, we will be talking more about the French Revolution. Thank you, or as they say in French, merci. Enjoy. Finish that up here. We introduced, I guess, the problems leading up to this yesterday. Uh, we'll try to get through this somewhat quickly. I'll try to get the highlights for you. But mainly, we're looking for because what you're going to be asked to do is compare these revolutions. So, I've already given you kind of an overview of similarities and differences between these revolutions. Uh, we already know that the American Revolution, there's not a lot of social change that takes place here. The American Revolution more is just kind of a small political change, but even then, with the political change, it's pretty much the power is still in the same hands of the people that it was in the middle of the 1700s. It just has to go through a fighting process to get back to that power. But there's not really a lot of change. And we'll look today at some of the reasons for that difference. You know, obviously, the social dynamics of what's going on in France are way more intricate than the social dynamics of what's going on in the Americas at the time. Because in France, you have the clergy class, the you know, all the three estates we talked about, the aristocrats, you have the bourgeoisie, you have the peasants, you have the urban workers, you have all these different groups, the monarch, that have different interests. Whereas in the Americas, you really just have the bourgeoisie and everybody else. And you have the slavery issue in the southern states, but you know, that's not really going to be an issue until about a century after this. So um, the social situation is a lot more simplified, I guess, than the new world, which is why we don't have as much of the social changes and stuff like that. So we saw the issues coming in here. Now, how do we solve these problems? You know, the, the issues here, the biggest one was what yesterday? The biggest issue in France leading up to 1789, what is it? There's huge debt, we're bankrupt. All right? There's all kinds of financial problems that the monarch, the people, everybody are facing. And there's not really a great answer. Well, Louis XVI, who's the king at the time, feels like we're going to answer this question the way we've always answered it. Get the taxes from the people. Well, at that point, the people can't pay any more taxes, right? And to do that, he has to get permission, I guess, he has to call the Estates General back together to get that approved. Well, here's the deal with the Estates General. You can think of this as kind of like a parliament in England. It's the same type of people, except the Estates General has not been called together in about 170 years. So it's been a long time, whereas parliament meets all the time. So the way the absolutist system in France works is you, don't, you work autonomously. You don't need other permission from other people. Well, Louis XVI does. But the Estates General has always been kind of a, a fail-safe fail option for him because it's always going to vote the way that he wants. The Estates General is divided into three different estates. The first one is the clergy. The second one is the uh, aristocrats. And the third is everyone else. Well, the way it votes is it votes by a state. So the clergy, they're all going to vote for the same thing every time, right? The aristocrats are going to vote for the same thing every time. Both of those are pretty much on the same page there. 
and then the third estate includes bourgeoisie, peasants, urban workers, everybody, they have no idea what they want to vote for, and it doesn't matter if they do anyways, because they only get one vote. So they're always going to be outvoted two to one by the other two, especially when you're talking about tax reform, because what's the advantage that the first estate and the second estate have that the third estate doesn't have? They don't pay taxes. And how often ever has anybody voted for themselves to pay more taxes? It doesn't happen. Even if you get one or two people to say, we'll do it for the good of the country, you're not going to get the whole body of people to do it, right? So, Louis feels pretty good about this plan because he thinks he can get the first and second estate to vote for more taxes for the third estate. It's passed. But what's the problem here, do you think, of calling this group back together? Yeah, you're showing weakness as an absolute monarch, that's for sure. But what else? Because this is a problem that would not have existed a hundred and whatever years ago when this was created, or when the last time this was called together. The dynamics have changed. How so? What? What do you mean? Well, people weren't represented then either. But it wasn't an issue back then. It's a little bit more of an issue now. Why? Explain. Alright, so, and that's exactly right. The bourgeoisie in the last century have developed into somewhat of an educated, wealthy, political force, formidable force here, right? And if you think about who's actually coming to this meeting, are peasants really going to leave their farms to come to this meeting in Paris? Probably not. Urban workers, they're starving. They can't do anything. So it's going to be the bourgeoisie that come to this meeting in the first place to represent the third estate. And so if I'm Louis XVI, all I've done at this point is brought everybody who was complaining about me already anyways from far away into Paris, into the same room, to scheme how they're going to create a new type of government. It's not a good idea, right? And you have all these educated people that come together, and influential people that come together, and say, we kind of have a common enemy, or a common problem, the government, the spending of the monarch, and these kind of things. Now, they're not talking about killing Louis or anything yet, but they're talking about making changes. Louis finds out about this pretty quick, and um, you know, we talked about how this votes and everything. Third estate gets upset. Louis figures out that the third estate is doing their own thing. He tries to send them all home. He says, no more meetings. We're done. He locks the door to the estate's general house. Well, the third estate, these bourgeois members, decide that they're going to go down the street and meet at this tennis court, and they're going to not disband until they've created a new constitution. So the revolution has begun here, right? Uh, oh, kind of. But they start calling themselves the National Assembly, which this name is kind of important for a couple of reasons. One, they consider themselves the representatives of the nation. But this also represents a theme, and we'll talk more about this later, but keep it in the back of your heads right now. But this starts a theme this idea of nationalism, 
which we're used to this idea. This is a big thing in the 20th century and then going into the 21st century. It starts here. The French Revolution is kind of the birth of nationalism. And we're going to see France use that to their advantage. Even in the American Revolution, you start to see that nationalism, you know, the patriots and that kind of stuff. But really, this is where it gets big. Because the French Revolution, if you have different groups of people, not really classes, but you have loyalists and you have patriots. So nationalism is not really a thing across even the entire colonies. But here in France, especially as we get to the second phase, we'll get to it in a few minutes, nationalism is huge. And that's going to be the biggest weapon that France has. So keep that in the back of your heads. But the third estate turns into the National Assembly. All right? And they think of themselves as the representatives of the nation, which they kind of are, but not really. These are bourgeois members. They're not going to be a great representation for peasants. They're not going to be any kind of representation for the urban workers. But they at least feel like, and probably are, a better representation than the clergy and the aristocrats. All right? So it's kind of a misnomer, but not really. All right? So we know about the social systems and that kind of stuff. And so the National Assembly vows, this is the tennis court oath is what it's called. They vow not to leave the tennis court, not to break up the National Assembly until they have a new constitution. It's like the Declaration of Independence moment for the United States. If you want to think of the uh, correlations between what we have in, in North America. This is like the July 4th moment. Technically, their July 4th moment would be this, July 14th, the storming of the, that's, they call that Bastille Day. That's the storming of the Bastille. All right, but we'll get to that in a second. So, the National Assembly creates their new, they call it the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, the Declaration of Independence. It has a lot of the same ideas. Thomas Jefferson is actually the United States ambassador to France at this time. He's actually here helping write this stuff. Because he said, hey, I got a lot of ideas from John Locke anyways. So all these guys know that. They've read Montesquieu. They've read everything. And actually, the type of government they set up is like Montesquieu's government. Because these are bourgeoisie members. Just like our founding fathers that created our constitution are bourgeoisie members. So the bourgeoisie always want Montesquieu-style republics because they're the representatives that are going to go make decisions for people. They don't want true democracy. That's crazy. And that's, we'll talk about why in a little bit. But one of their greatest fears is true democracy and handing power over to the mob of people that are not fit to rule. That's not what you want to do. So these guys want to make it where the bourgeoisie are in control. Republic is great for that. All right? Now, um, we're going to start to see King Louis XVI <coughs> said, I thought I sent those guys home. People are talking like they're going and arming themselves. So he's going to send a band of people to arrest these guys. They arm themselves. You can go back and look at the causes and the effects later on there. Um, and they storm it's the big symbol of the old regime here, the Bastille. And they say they're freeing these prisoners, but they're not really that anymore. But that's technically the beginning of the revolution. All right, so this happens in 
But everybody across France starts hearing revolution. And the peasants, in their minds, that means something different than it does for the bourgeoisie. What do the bourgeoisie want again? Power, yeah. But what's their main goal? Or even just to even the playing field with taxes, right? At least make the others pay taxes too. Equality is what they call it. Now, like I said, equality means something different to different people. The bourgeois equality is include us in this whole making decisions thing. Not everybody, but us. And get rid of aristocratic and clerical privilege. So everybody's equal. Even these little peasants, they're equal. They don't have to do these, you know, they don't have to pay feudal dues and that kind of stuff anymore. We're not going to let them make decisions in government because they're stupid. But we are going to make them equal as far as rights. All right? So the peasants, though, what does revolution mean to the peasants? What do they want out of this whole thing? Obviously, they don't want to pay these taxes either. But what else? Peasant in 1789 France. What? Land. Land. They want land to farm. Right now, they have to rent land from the aristocrats, the nobles, and they have to pay all these taxes just to have the right to do that. All they want to do is seize the land, divide it evenly amongst everybody else. This is mine, this is yours, great. So that's what they start doing. And they start, this is called the great fear, attacking the noble estates. And the aristocracy, well, if they stay around too long, they kill them. Or most of them run, most of them flee. And they get out of France, and they go live in one of their villas somewhere else across Europe, all right? But the aristocracy class is eliminated. Either they're killed or they fled, but they're no longer in France. So the second estate, gone. X'd off the list, which is great for the peasants and great for the bourgeoisie. Now they're the only ones making decisions. And so this whole class of nobles, they're known as the emigres that fled, they're gone. They're a non-factor anymore. And this land, is in the hand of the peasants. So the peasants have kind of got what they want, and the bourgeoisie have got what they want. All right? So that's what we see happening in the Great Fear. All right? Now, during this time, this is an opportunity, because with the nobles gone, we're just going to go ahead and take away their privilege. All right? Any opposition from the nobles? Oh, sorry, you guys aren't here to vote. So. They're going to be pretty much taking away any kind of feudalism. They pretty much say we're ending feudalism. Which means feudalism's kind of come to an end anyway as far as political goes. But socially, feudalism is still very much there. So the nobles have no more aristocratic privileges. Any ones that are around that didn't get killed, they either renounce their titles or they're killed. And so no longer is there such thing as a nobility class. Everybody pays taxes, everybody does the, all this kind of stuff. All right? And they technically say that anybody can have offices and that all male citizens can vote and that kind of stuff if you do what? What? If you pay taxes, right, Kev? 
So here's the deal. This is how this is. You remember in the American Revolution, our founding fathers, they wanted to make sure the power was in the hands of the bourgeoisie. You have to own this much property to be able to vote or hold office. In France, everybody's equal. So if you pay this certain tax, you're an active citizen. You can vote. If you don't want to pay the tax, you can still be a passive citizen and not vote. So that's how the bourgeoisie keep the peasants out of it. All right? So that is over. Now, we've dealt with the nobles. How do we deal with the clergy now? Well, simple. We take the clergy's land. They have a ton of it. We sell it to raise money for the National Assembly. We print these little signats that are going to be the currency there. And then we force the clergy to sign this, they call it the Civil Constitution of the Clergy. And now they work for the state. So we're bringing the clergy into the revolution. Most of them refuse and they leave. But the others that want to stay have to sign this, con this Civil Constitution of the Clergy. So now the clergy is subjugated as a section of the state. Well, no more first estate. It's over. So the bourgeoisie have eliminated their two enemies here. Now, this is all part of phase one. We're going to see three phases to the French Revolution. Phase one is the bourgeois phase. The bourgeoisie are making decisions. It's called the Age of Montesquieu because they're going to set up a Montesquieu-style government. Three branches, separate but equal, our constitution pretty much. Their executive branch is King Louis XVI. Their legislative branch is the National Assembly, and they set up some judges. All right? So um, that's pretty much what we see happening here. Now, phase one, the bourgeoisie phase, these are the changes that are made. They don't last, and it's not successful. Why? What have they not done? That was a vague question. Well, they pretty much have. They've, they have designed special powers for the king. Remember, the bourgeoisie did not want to get rid of the king. These are moderate revolutionaries, which is a weird word that sounds like an oxymoron. But they are moderate revolutionaries. The radicals are about to take over. Phase two is the radical phase. Phase. But what have they not done that the radicals need done? Well, the peasants got some land. They, the bourgeoisie. This is one thing the budget brought that up. The bourgeoisie definitely don't want to start the habit of just take whatever you want mentality. Because if you start taking land from aristocrats. The bourgeoisie, have a, they own a lot of stuff. So they want to protect the institution of private property as much as they can, or else they're going to start losing everything. So they force some compensation from the peasants. But the peasants are fine because they don't have to pay taxes like that anymore. They don't lower the cost of living? Okay, so what's their economic policy so far? Nothing. So they have not solved the issue for the working class of we can't afford our lives. They haven't controlled the bread prices. They haven't controlled anything like that. Because what is the bourgeoisie mentality with economics? Think enlightenment. Because bourgeoisie enlightenment everything. Who's our, who's our enlightened economic thinker? 
Exactly. What does Adam Smith say about economics? Free trade, laissez-faire, leave it alone, don't touch it. So the bourgeoisie don't touch the economy. They just say, let it go. Whatever happens, happens. Well, what happens is bread prices keep going sky high because while these peasants are overthrowing the land, who's working the land? Who's farming? So what happens to the food product? It's not going to get bigger. So prices start getting higher and higher for food. Inflation's going crazy. The bourgeoisie don't step in to do anything to stop that. So people in Paris go crazy, especially the women here, because they can't afford to feed their families. So the women all organize, and they march to Versailles, where the king is living. They're still blaming a lot of the problems on the king. All right? And they march to Versailles, they arrest the king, and they bring him back to Paris, all right? Now, they don't put him in jail, they put him in his palace in Paris. He's got a palace everywhere, right? And so, they put him pretty much on house arrest there in his palace, all right? The bourgeoisie have not really succeeded in establishing the type of government that they wanted. This is pretty much the end of the bourgeoisie phase. So, and that's the constitution they set up, we talked about all that. Now, the monarchy tries to escape, they find him, they bring him back, somebody recognizes his chariot, what kind of idiot escapes in his own royal chariot, and they bring him back to Paris, right? While this is happening, the French start a new republic. Now, this republic is going to, this is where we see phase two begin of the revolution. Phase two, so if phase one is the age of Montesquieu, phase two is the age of Rousseau. Now, what do we remember about Rousseau from the Enlightenment? What type of, if Montesquieu is all about separate branches of government, checks and balances, three branches kind of thing, what's Rousseau? Obviously, it's a republic. But what's his big uh, idea? Yeah. Social contract. And what was his social contract? Man is born free and he is awakened. Exactly, but what does he say? The what? What should govern? That's a G. The general rule. The general will of the people. Alright? So, in phase two, this is what governs. What does that look like? Who is the general will? Who decides the general will? Well, these are all really good questions, guys. I'm glad you brought those up. So, what does this look like in France? Well, in a republic, it's pretty much the Parisians that take over. People that live in Paris. Do they really represent the general will? Probably not, because they don't represent the needs of the peasants. They don't represent the needs of the bourgeoisie. They don't represent the needs of the aristocracy. So it's hard to identify what the general will is. I mean, even in the United States, where we have a democratic society, it's hard to generalize what that is. And it's hard to identify what that is. You have a lot of different minorities. You have a lot of different um, subgroups. You have a lot of different people that want different things. Well, Rousseau talks about the social contract that exists between the general will and everybody else, pretty much the majority of the minority, and how the general will has to make sure it doesn't step on the toes of the minority, but the minority is going to have to give up some of its rights and needs and wants to help support the general will. 
Well, in a republic like this, if you have radical workers that take over, what happens if you're not part of the general will? Or what happens if you're not, this group that takes over is called the sans culotte, which is the, the Parisian workers, right? What happens if you're not part of that group? That's the answer. And the reign of terror starts picking up. And if you oppose the general will, if you're not for the revolution, if you're not nationalistic and showing active support, you get your head cut off. Thousands and thousands and thousands of executions take place in this two-year period. If you're seen as not doing your job for the revolution, you're brought before a tribunal, executed. Hundreds a day. All right? And these are big spectator sports, almost. All right? Because the way you show your active support of the revolution is you go to the guillotine and you cheer and holler when this treasonous loses his head. It gets to be pretty crazy. And I'll go back to boots on this. So the French Republic is set up. And the Republic is ruled by these Parisian workers. And they take over the economy. We start to see this mentality of, because they're going to be at war here pretty soon, total war. And this... Levee on loss is pretty much everybody does your job for the nation, for the country. They set the limit for prices. Bread can only be charged this much price, which the peasants get angry about. And they control every aspect of the government at this time. All right? So that's what we're seeing here, the general will, Rousseau, the age of Rousseau. They make a new calendar. Because the old one, they're trying to get away from the Christian side of uh, society here. This is de-Christianization. So they make a Republican calendar instead of the Gregorian calendar. Because our calendar is you know, AD, BC, and it's all centered on the birth of Jesus and that kind of stuff. <coughs> they're getting away from that. Uh, the Enlightenment is not having an official religion. So they're trying to follow those ethics here. Right? But they cut the, ki the king's head off. They don't like having him around anymore. Um, especially after he tried to flee. Um, they make a lot of changes here. And this new republic, this is what the this is the greatest fear of the bourgeoisie. Remember how we talked about both in the Americas and in France. They the last thing they want to do is turn power over to these crazies that don't that can't handle it. The radicals. That's what they're worried about because this is the kind of stuff that happens. Guillotines everywhere, all right? A lot of executions here. All right, so uh, Robespierre's the guy that's kind of responsible for that. Robespierre's radical reign of terror, whatever that, I guess. Now, during this time, Obviously, the other nations across Europe, and this is a difference we're going to see with the, the United States, this is threatening to them because France is in chaos. The old regime, the old order, it's gone. So, and they've just cut the king's head off. So if I'm a king in Austria, what's the last trend that I want to take over and become popular in Europe? Kingdom. Cutting king's heads off, right? So they're going to try to stop this revolution mentality. If I'm an aristocrat in Great Britain, the last thing I'm going to want to do is give up my aristocratic privilege. Well, they've made them do it in France. 
Who's going to stop them from making them do it in Great Britain? So we want to stop this revolution right here, right now. So they got these guys all band together. And they pretty much say, if you touch Louis, we're going to come in and level Paris. Well, France's response is, chop Louis' head off. So these guys form an army, and they invade France. Well, France, because of this idea of nationalism, starts banding together, and they create an army that's bigger than anyone's ever created in history. Armies to this time, coming into this war, are maybe about 60, 70,000 people. And the military engagements of this time were kind of a few battles here and there. Out, you won, shake hands afterwards, it's done. Treaty, you get this land, great, good job, hurrah, good job. That was a good movie. All right? Now, here, you're going to have an entire nation at arms with this levee on boss. You're going to have a draft. So instead of having an 80,000 80, person professional army, you're going to have a 1 million man army of people that don't know what they're doing, but you're just going to throw as many people in the battlefield as you can and overwhelm the enemy. And even if you bring all of these guys together, they can't stand up to this army because it's well funded. You have the entire, this is the first example of total war that we're going to see. And you're going to see, this is a big change actually in military. We'll talk about this later on. But um, when we get to World War I and World War II. But you have an entire economy that's put forth for the war effort. That's what France has. Nationalism at its finest early on, I guess. People doing it for the, something. and this is forced. People don't want to do this, but the government's making them do it. Because if you don't, what happens? Chop your head off, right? So that's what we're starting to see happening here with spread of the revolution. So when this guy comes into play, he has 10 times as many soldiers as anybody else in Europe at the time. He's a very brilliant military general, whatever. And he starts taking over Europe. He has victories over, there's going to be seven total coalitions of all the European nations that come together to try to stop him. They're not going to do it until the seventh one. And that's even really after something else. We'll talk about that in just a second. All right? But he takes over power. And the radical phase comes to an end. People get sick of losing their heads and getting chopped off and stuff. So that republic comes to an end. Napoleon takes over. Phase three of the revolution begins. Phase three is the age of Voltaire. Because Voltaire thought that people couldn't really govern themselves, as evidenced by the second phase of the French Revolution, which he wasn't around for. But that's proof of that. So you needed somebody, an elite type person, who is an absolutist dictator, who can support enlightened ideals, that's the best way to get it done. An absolute enlightened absolutist. That's what he would have said Napoleon was. So that's why phase three is called the age of Napoleon or the age of Voltaire. Because that's what he would be in favor of. Alright? So Napoleon takes over everything. And he makes he uses this power to pretty much make all these revolutionary changes. Um, and he does it in other countries too. He abolishes feudalism. You know, the whole Roman Empire that we talked about way back in the 900s, it's still around. Napoleon just says, I don't like it anymore, and he changes the Confederation of the Rhine. Confederation of the Rhine. Just like that. 
which is getting rid of feudalism in those areas. Aristocratic privilege is no longer a thing across Europe. So he's making these changes that they all didn't want him to make. So you see social change is the biggest thing here. Now, here's the thing. Napoleon is militarily undefeatable. He loses one battle so far, and that's a naval battle to the British, because he almost the British on sea, right? But everything else he's just dominant in until he gets to Russia. And he's already had victories over Russia, but he tries to go invade Russia, which is a big mistake. And because what do we know about Russia? Yeah, it's cold. It's big, it's cold. But Napoleon feels he's kind of narcissistic, right? He feels like my troops can march faster than anybody in history. We can make it to Moscow and we can conquer this before winter even happens. But here's the thing this lightning warfare type mentality. Alexander I, the Tsar of Russia, does something Napoleon is not ready for. Alexander I burns his own fields and destroys his own cities. So he'll engage Napoleon a little bit, then he'll run away and burn everything. He's burning his own towns. So that Napoleon gets brought further and further and further into Russia, but every time he gets there, they're running out of supplies. and They're getting further away from France. So Napoleon invades Russia with 600,000 of his best, most experienced troops. He makes it back to Paris with a little bit less than 200,000 troops. So he loses pretty much the bulk of his army. And Russia, he doesn't take Moscow. All right? And this is not a good look for Napoleon. This is not good for him. And so the Seventh Coalition comes together, and that's when they end up defeating. All right? So Napoleon pretty much comes to an end there. He's finally defeated the Battle of Waterloo. That's a famous battle there. And that's the end of the revolution. Now, what do we do to, now that Napoleon is gone? Who takes over? Because we talked about a major difference between American Revolution and French Revolution is not a lot of political change in the French Revolution. So who takes back over? King Louis XVII. King, but King Louis XVI, it said, was chopped off. Seventeen. King Louis XVII was his young son who died of 18. illness. 18. King Louis XVIII. It was King Louis XVI's brother who takes over. They go back to the same family, same monarchy, not a lot of political change there. They go through several rounds, but none of it sticks, none of it lasts. Haitian Revolution will save for next week. We're done for the day. Thank you for tuning in into the third episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. In the next episode, we will be talking about the Haitian Revolution. Thank you.